0: We are going to continue on in this series called We Are Harvest, looking at what we are, who we are as a church, what we're all about, how we're following the Lord together and doing this. Um, and today we want to look at this topic of unceasing prayer together from Hebrews chapter four. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter four. Um, if you're a visitor with us today, again, we're glad you're here. If we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. Those of you worshiping with us online, we're glad that you're with us as well. And again, if, if you need anything, type it in the comments. We'll try to help you out as much as we can also. So, um, so as, as I've kind of admitted to many of you before, if you've been around Harvest for any length of time, you know that at our house, uh, we tend to like to watch um, shows about police and military and different things like that and different groups. And um, one of the things, if you've ever watched some of those shows before, you know that anytime the team goes out on a big you know, mission or on a big uh, call for something, One of the things that they always have with them, one of the things they're always using is their comms, right? And today, if you watch a lot of times the the updated versions, they'll have it kind of tied into some type of earwig where they have constant communication with the people on the other side, whether that be the, the home base center or whether that be the other teams out with them or each other. They have these comms that are constantly keeping them in communication with one another. And when they're on a mission, one of the worst things that can happen is for the comms to go out right? Because once the comms go out, then they have no connection back to home base for extra support or to call in reinforcements or to get help from their teammates or whatever it might be. And it can mean the difference between fulfilling the mission or not, life or death even sometimes, if they don't have that constant communication with the support that they need. Well, I think you know where I'm going. For Christians, our comms are—it's prayer. The tool that God has given us to be in ongoing, constant communication with the one who has all the power that we need to fulfill the mission and to make it through this life is prayer. And so we're going to look at today why it's so important and how we can be tied into this constant, unceasing communication with the Lord. We say here at Harvest that we believe firmly in the power of prayer. And what I love about that statement is that you notice where it puts the emphasis. We believe firmly in the power of prayer, right? It's not in the power of us getting together. It's not in the power of the words I say. It's not in the power of reciting some special thing that we've typed out on the screen. All those things are fine, but ultimately the power is not in how we do it or what is said. The power is in the process of prayer where we are connecting with the God who has the power to work mightily in our lives, in our church, in our communities. And so today we're going to see that from Hebrews here in chapter 4, that unceasing prayer is our lifeline to the unceasing power of God. Unceasing prayer is our lifeline to the unceasing power of God. That's why it's important. That's why we need it desperately all the time, every day. So with that in mind, look at chapter 4 of Hebrews, starting in verse 14. So the first thing I want you to see from this text this morning is that we believe in unceasing prayer because, number one, we have an unceasing mediator. We have an unceasing mediator. The author of Hebrews here, we don't really know who the author of Hebrews is, is, by the way. It's kind of an unknown uh, writer to us. But nonetheless, the writer here says that we have a great high priest so let's unpack that phrase for a second, because we don't talk about high priests a lot anymore, at least not in our circles. Um, it's not a Christian religion type of term anymore. But for the readers of Hebrews, the Jewish people, this would have made perfect sense for them. In the Old Testament, the high priest, also sometimes called the great priest, if you look in certain scriptures, this high priest, this great priest, was the most holy position in all of Judaism. Right? He was the one who was the main representative between God God, and his people. And it was only the high priest who was allowed to go into God's presence. No one else was allowed into the presence of God. They had this place called the Holy of Holies, which was this, this inner sanctum of the tabernacle, and then later the temple. It was, it was surrounded by, um, by curtains and, and uh, veils, and so that only, only certain people would walk in there, because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's throne here on earth. It was the place where God chose for his presence to come down and dwell among his people. And no one entered the presence of God except for the high priest. And even him only once a year. And only after he had went through his own purification and his own um, um, sacrifices to purify himself from his sins. So that he was not going in with any guilt on him Because if he did, he would be struck down in the presence of a holy God. And once a year, he would enter to make sacrifices for the sins of all the people. Because he was the only mediator that they had between them and the Lord to deal with sin. This is the picture that the author of Hebrews is pointing to. This high priest, his primary role was to be the mediator between God and man. But now he says that we have a great high priest. And again, remember, high priest can be called great priest. So he's kind of saying... We have a great, great priest, if you will, purposely being redundant for emphasis here. He says, we have a high priest who is far superior to all of the previous Jewish high priests, and his name is Jesus. He's going to go on in chapters 5 through 10. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach all those today. But he's going to go on through chapters 5 through 10 through the book of Hebrews to explain why Jesus is the far superior great high priest above all others. And he's going to first tell us that he sympathizes with us in our human need because he himself has walked as a human and knows what it's like to be tempted. And yet he did so in perfect holiness, never sinning, never falling, to sin, as we so often do, and so he knows where we're at, he, he can sympathize with us, which makes him a great high priest. He goes on to say that he also has an eternal calling to the priesthood. His priesthood is not, is not um, limited to his lifespan here on earth, as all the priests of Aaron were, he is eternally the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He also brings a new and better covenant. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, he ushered in the new covenant of grace where we can be forgiven of our sins through his blood and through his atonement. He also ministers in the true presence of God. All the other high priests, they would go into the Holy of Holies, but that was just the symbolic presence of God. Jesus does not go to the Holy of Holies. He now is in heaven at the right hand of the Father in the actual presence of God mediating for us. And lastly, he gave the once for all perfect sacrifice. The high priest had to go in every year and make a new sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus did it once for all, forever on the cross. That's how perfect his sacrifice was. He died for your sins, past, present, and future. All wiped clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament role that foreshadowed his final work for us. He's the great high priest. He goes on to say that this great high priest passed through the heavens. He's alluding here to Jesus' what we call the ascension right? That after his resurrection back to life, he went around on the earth for approximately 40 days or so probably and shared with his disciples and taught and got them ready. And then he went and he ascended through the sky or through the heavens, as he calls them here, into God's presence to be with him and rule for eternity. He didn't just pass through some symbolic veil of the Holy of Holies. He passed through the heavens to be in the presence of God. And he calls him here this great high priest was Jesus the son of God. It's important that he gives him both titles there. Jesus is pointing to his full humanity. That was his human name, right? He wasn't called Jesus before he was born to Mary. He was just the son. Jesus is his human name. It's pointing here to that he was 100% fully human that he walked this earth just like you and I, experiencing everything we experience in terms of temptation and trials and struggles and pain. But not only was he Jesus, he was also the son of God. He was fully 100% God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, all at the same time. How does that work? I don't know. There are some mysteries in the word of God, that we're better, li- better left just to the mind of God, because our minds would explode if we even began to understand them. But here, the Hebrew author stresses that he was both fully man and fully God, so that he is the only one equipped to be the bridge between man and God as the great mediator, the great high priest. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, he's pointing here that he was and is God. He came down in the radiance of God, and now he ascended and he rules at the right hand of God. He is 100% God, but he was also man, and in his humanity, he made purification for our sins on the cross. Friends, it doesn't matter what anybody else tells you. It doesn't matter what other opinions you might hear. The word of God is clear. Jesus is the only solution that reconciles us with God. He's the only one who can mediate for us before God the Father. And so because of this, the author tells us, he says, so hold fast your confession. Hold fast to the confession that we have in him. What confession is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. The same thing that all of us confess in order to be a part of Christ and his kingdom. We confess that we are broken sinners. Right? That, that we are rebellious against a holy God. That we go our own way. That we do it our own thing. That we don't care what he says. And that because of that sin, we, we are separated from God for all of eternity. we deserve wrath and punishment. We deserve hell because we have broken God's word. But we also confess that God, looking down at us in our sinfulness, loved us enough and through his grace and his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born as a human, to walk this earth just like we do to walk through every temptation, every trial, and yet do it perfectly without sin. Only to go to the cross and to lay down his life to pay, not for his sin, but for our sin. To take upon himself the sin of all who would believe, to take upon their guilt and their punishment and all that they were owed because of their rebellion against God and for God to say, I'll take his payment instead. And he went to the ground, dead, in a tomb, three days, and then he rose back to life to prove that he was God, to prove that he had conquered sin, he had conquered death, and to offer us forgiveness and grace, to offer to be the mediator between us and God that can fix our sin problem once and for all if we'll come to him, if we'll hold fast to our confession, if we'll hold fast to our faith in Jesus Christ. The author here, he's exhorting us, keep your faith. Keep your faith in the mediator. Keep your faith in Jesus, our Savior, And if we're going to keep faith in a mediator, that means we're going to keep praying to a mediator. That's the whole point, right? That's his job. When, um, when Courtney and I first moved back to St. Louis to start planting the church, we were working through the process of trying to get health insurance for us and for the girls and stuff like that. And, and we were working with this one organization, and, and the process to apply for insurance was just really unclear and unhelpful and just wasn't, it was just a hot mess, all right? And so we are working through this, and she's going through all this paperwork and doing all this stuff. And so she finally starts calling, like, the, the 1-800 number, like the hotline, right, for the organization, and trying to, like, figure out, okay, what's the next step in the process? What do we need to do? Da-da-da-da. And kind of get the, the ball moving here. But the problem was the hotline, the number, it went to a call center, right? And not just any call center, an outsourced call center. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had these conversations. You've been on these phone calls, right? And so she would call, and she would say, "Okay, what's going on?" And, and the problem was, on the other end of the phone line, the, service, the customer service representatives, all they had on, was in front of them was a computer screen with a readout of your information. Right? They had no ability to answer any questions that you had. They had no ability to send any communication up the chain to anyone that could help. They had no one in the room that they could call a manager to get a, more information. There was just a complete they could read you what your application said, and that was pretty much it. They were worthless when it came to mediating anything, right? At best, they might be able to put a note in your file that miraculously somebody might read on the other end of the system and might do something about it. And so she became, it became very clear, very soon, like, why do I keep calling these people? Like, it's pointless to keep calling, because they can't do anything. They have no power to mediate in this process. And so eventually, I searched the Google and found a phone number to like the head of the entire organization and called and got a hold of one of their secretaries and worked backwards down the food chain. I don't think that's the way you're supposed to do it, but that's the way we did it because that was the only way to get through in the process. That is the exact opposite of what we're dealing with as Jesus, our great mediator. Jesus absolutely has all the power and all the ability and all the desire to help you and to bring your request before the Lord and to mediate for you before God the Father every single time that you call out to him in prayer. And not only does he have the power to do it, he is available 24-7. All right? there's, There's no off hours. You don't ever get the recording that says call back tomorrow. Jesus is always there ready and able and eager to mediate for us. This is why we believe in unceasing prayer. Because we have an unceasing mediator. We pray without ceasing because Jesus is mediating without ceasing. That's an incredible truth for us as Christians. I think too often we kind of glaze over that. Like it's, oh yeah, that's it. we pray and he listens and that's just how it works. But no other religion has this. No, no other people in the world have the claim that they have a mediator sitting at the right hand of God, able and eager to tell all your requests to him. This is huge. But there's more. Look at verse 15 again. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we believe in unceasing prayer because we have an unceasing mediator, but also, number two, because he has unceasing sympathy. It says here that he is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Again, the author purposely here is using a double negative. He's not unable <laughs> To to emphasize that he can definitely do this, right? This is who he is. And what's interesting here on the word sympathize, which is kind of the the focus of this verse, is that in all of the New Testament, the Greek word there that means sympathize is not found anywhere else. This is the only use in all the New Testament for this particular Greek word. So that means that we have to kind of go outside of the New Testament to kind of get the fully orbed meaning of the word that we're talking about here. And What's interesting is with English, we always our language seems to always lose nuances of words a lot of times when we get into some of these things. And when we think about sympathy in the English language, it simply means to, to feel pity, right? To feel sorrow for someone else's pain. Like, I see you struggling, I see your, your problem, and so I feel for you, right? That's sympathy. But it usually kind of has some distance to it. But here, what, what this Greek word actually means is compassionate to the point of helping. It's not just seeing and feeling the pain from a distance. It's seeing the pain and the struggle and then coming near to give active assistance to the one who is in need. And so Jesus sympathizes. He comes near to us in our weakness. That word weakness could mean lots of different types of weakness, but in this context, it's clear that he's talking about sin the weakness of our flesh, the weakness of temptation and problems and pain and struggles that we're up against day in and day out. He's talking about our weakness just simply being human. Can I get an amen from somebody, right? Don't you ever feel that? Like day after day, you're struggling in the sin and the temptation, and you're like, why can't, I fight? why can't I stop this? Why can't I fix this? It's because you're human. It's because I'm human. And we were born with a flesh that desires and runs after these things in our natural state. And Jesus says, I know. I know what that feels like. I know what that's like because I've been there. He says, I can sympathize with their weakness. In every respect, he was tempted just as we were. Jesus, again, he was fully human. He experienced every form of temptation and affliction that we experience. And here's what's really comforting, guys. He hasn't forgotten it. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to think, well, yeah, that's when he was on the earth, but now he's up in, you know, he's up in his God form, and he's in, like, that's, a, that's a thing of the past for him. But listen, he fully remembers all of it. And let me tell you why. Number one, right now, in heaven, next to, at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus still resides in his human form, still bearing the marks of his death still remembering the sacrifice that he had to give and the pain that he went through to conquer the sin that we struggle with every single day. He has not forgotten one detail of what it's like to suffer from temptation and to fight against sin. It says that in every respect he was tempted yet without sin. That's the difference. He remembers fully what it feels like, but he also was able to do it in perfect holiness. Never falling, never failing. And again, I think sometimes in our human brains, it's easier for us to think, well, okay, well, if he did it perfectly, I never do it perfectly, so what's what's he think about me, (laughs) right? Like surely he's sitting up there on his throne looking down in judgment and in disdain because I did it, why can't you do it? But that's not the approach that Jesus takes. Jesus' perfection did not puff him up with some type of human pride where he looks down and judges us, but it empowered him to help us now look and see and overcome the same sin that he overcame in the flesh. Because Jesus experienced and overcame every temptation, he is perfectly equipped to empower his people to do the same. We have to flip this switch if we're really going to get the purpose of prayer as Hebrews is talking about it here. So oftentimes when we sin and when we struggle, our gut reaction is to go away from Jesus. To hide our sin, to hide our struggle, to, to, get, a, to, to get distance from God. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I know exactly what you're going through. Come near Let me say it this way, Jesus is my safest place to run when temptation and sin come. We don't often see it that way, but it's true. Jesus is the safest place we can go when we're struggling with temptation and sin because he knows what it's like and he's eager and able to help us through it. He gets it says, I, I know, I understand, come, let me help you. I read a story this week about a young girl named Annie. Uh, it said that one cold Christmas Eve, Annie and her family were out for a dinner, and they came home from dinner that night, and uh, there was ginger ale and a plate of cookies on the, on the table for the big day, for the big guy coming the next morning. And, uh, and so she comes in, she takes off her coat, and she's standing over the heat register, and she's trying to warm herself. And then she hears a knock on the door and the door, front door flings open and in walks this person that she's never seen before, It was Santa Claus. And her family says, Annie, Annie, look who it is, look who it is, Santa's here. And Annie turned white as a ghost and ran straight upstairs to her room. And Santa Claus is standing down in the doorway and he's ringing his little bell, he's saying, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And Annie's like, nope, she would not come down for anything. Later on, Annie explained. she said, I was scared of Santa because he was an old man who you never saw, but nevertheless, he always saw you. And he knew when you'd been bad and good, and I'd been bad. So oftentimes, I think that's the way we think about God. He's this old man sitting on his throne, you never see, but he knows you, and he knows everything that you do. He knows the good, and he knows the bad, and let's just be honest, for all of us, the bad always way outweighs the good. And because of this picture, we're scared, we're fearful, We, we don't want to go to him when we sin, we want to go away from him. But he's saying, no, I'm, I'm here for you. I died for that. I'm your mediator. Come. I understand. I'm not, in, I'm not standing here to, to, to condemn you. I'm standing here to help you, to forgive you. If you will just come to me. I think this is a major issue, not just for Christians, but for people in general, to want to run away from Jesus when sin comes. So I just made a little list here. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but maybe this will help you kind of diagnose your own heart. When sometimes you fall into temptation or sin and you want to run from Jesus instead of to Jesus, maybe one of these things can help you turn that corner. So five reasons why we run from Jesus instead of to Jesus. Number one, fear. I just kind of touched on this one, right? It's this fear that he's going to judge me, that he's going to punish me, right? That he's sitting up there just waiting to strike me with the lightning bolt. And we, when we think this way, we, we fail to understand and remember that because of Jesus Christ, that it's no longer an issue of judgment. If we'll come to him, it's now an issue of grace and forgiveness. We don't have to be afraid because he lovingly wants to forgive our sin. Second reason, shame. Sometimes we know that he will forgive us, but we're like, man, this sin's just too bad. I've done it too many times, right? When you've, when you've done it the 10th time or the, the 20th time or the 50th time, and you're like, Psh, how can he still forgive me? I mean, I just keep going back to the same thing over and over. It's just, at some point, he's got to be done with me. And there's this building shame over recurring sin in our life, and we don't want to go back and ask again for forgiveness. So we run from Jesus instead of to Jesus. Number three, pride I can handle this on my own. I got this, right? It's a sin, but it's a small one. If I just work hard enough, if I just do the right things, if I just if I just call the right people or put the right right, you know, fences in place, I can deal with this sin. I can handle it on my own. How's that working out? <laughs> Jesus says, "No, you can't handle it on your own. Come. Let me give you the power you need. Number four, it's a lack of faith. When I say lack of faith, I mean that we don't believe he is who he says he is. We believe that that this problem is too big for God. Yeah, those other sins, those other issues, yeah, I understand he can help with it, but this one's too big. Because we fail to believe that he really is the almighty God over all of the universe that has unlimited power and strength to deal with whatever is going on in our life. Or we go to the other extreme. We say it's too small. Right? He doesn't care about this. This is like some little dinky problem in my life. God, this is way too small for God's time and attention. He doesn't care about this. And again, if you think that, you don't know God. God. This is the same God who created every intricacy of who you are. He knows every hair on your head, and he loves you to the smallest detail of your life. The fifth reason, it was hard for me to write this one this week. I've, I've I've dealt with some of this myself, and it's convicting to say it, but it's embracing the flesh. Sometimes it's just easier to run to the familiar sinful crutch, that habit that we've gotten used to using throughout the years to dull the pain and deal with our sin and deal with our stuff. Sometimes it's a lot easier because, let's just be honest, sometimes sin feels fun, right? Doesn't the Bible say it's, it's, it's good for a season, right? But then that runs out and you have to reap the consequences, But sometimes in our flesh it's just easier just to run back to that same sinful crutch that I'm used to holding on to that always I think is going to fix it but never does instead of running to Jesus and letting him do the hard work of changing me and changing my heart and drawing me into his holiness. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what your reason is For running from Jesus, but I know that these are some tough ones for me. And every time they fail, every time I get to the end of whatever it is, I'm like, psh, that didn't solve anything. And then I finally get on my knees, and Jesus comes. And He heals it, and He carries me through it. We pray without ceasing. Because Jesus is our safest place to run with our weakness. Oh, church, we have to believe this. This has to become rooted in our hearts. That when we fall, when we fail, because we will, that the safest place for us to run in our weakness is the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. He is our mediator. One more thing, look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We believe in unceasing prayer because we have an unceasing mediator who has unceasing sympathy. And point number three, we have unceasing access. Unceasing access. Again, this statement here in verse 16 would have been shocking to the Jews. When he tells them, draw near to the throne of God, they'd have been like, are you crazy? Right? Like You did not come near the throne of God if you valued your life. Because in your sinfulness, you would be struck down dead. Only the high priest could do that. There are stories in the Old Testament of people accidentally—I'm sorry—of people dying because they accidentally touched the throne of God as they were trying to protect it from hitting the ground. Right? You did not mess with the presence of God, but here he says, "Draw near," because of Jesus. You see, Jesus changes everything, all the time, everywhere, all of it. Jesus changes everything. The new great high priest has transformed the throne of judgment into the throne of grace. Jesus took the punishment for our sin so that we can now receive grace instead of punishment at the throne room of God. This is why in Matthew 27, verse 51 As Jesus is being crucified, he's dying on the cross. It tells us that the veil to the Holy of Holies, the the thing that kept people distant from God's presence, that it was torn from the top down, torn in half, symbolizing that Jesus' death, his fulfillment of our punishment, now has granted us full, unhindered access to the presence of God. He says, so draw near in confidence, not arrogance, let's be clear here, okay? Not arrogance, not pride, not because you deserve it, but draw near in confidence and assurance that you will receive the grace of God rather than the judgment of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. When I think about this invitation to draw near to God, I want you to think about for just a second, like, what does that entail? What's it look like to draw near to someone? Think about the person in your life that you're closest to, that you have the nearest relationship with. It could be a spouse, it could be your kids, it could be a friend, it could be another family member. Like, who in your life is that nearest, closest relationship for you? What does it take to build that near, close relationship? It takes being in each other's presence. It takes talking a lot. I don't talk to anyone in this world more than I talk to Courtney. Why? Because we're near one another. This is the closest relationship that we have. That's what God's inviting you into. He says, come, draw near to me. Let's have that close relationship personal relationship and the only way you're going to have that is if you talk to him a lot right church we have to pray more I don't know if you're at a two or five or nine it doesn't even matter wherever you're at more more is what God's calling us to Draw near, he says. My level of prayer with God sets my level of proximity to God. You want to be closer to God in your life? You want to to feel more of the presence of the Holy Spirit active in your life? The way you raise the level of proximity to God is by raising your level of prayer to God. This is how we draw near. And he says, as you do that, you will receive mercy. Mercy is the forgiveness of our sin. It's the release from sin rather than punishment and wrath. He says, you'll receive mercy and find grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's giving us the power of the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us to help us overcome temptation and walk in faithfulness to him. He says, you'll receive mercy and find grace and find help in your time of need. Listen to this guys. God desires us to seek his help just as much as we need to seek his help. You're not bothering him. You're not pestering him when you pray. It's not like he's, you know, getting all out of sorts because you keep coming back. He says, no, come, draw near to me. I want to help you. Jeremiah 33.3 3 says, call to me and I will answer you. He promises us, call and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Jeremiah twenty three thirteen. You will seek me and find me. That's a promise of God. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He wants us to draw near. And because of Jesus... Our great eternal mediator, we have 24 7 access to God, unlimited, unhindered, all the time. And yet, so often, we fail to use it, myself included. So often, we fail to use the unceasing access that we have to the throne of grace. And we run to other people, and we run to devices, and we run to substances, and we run to money, and we run to work, and we run to all these other things that we think are somehow going to fix the problem. God says, draw near to me. Let me be the one. We pray without ceasing to be as near as possible to the throne of God. I don't know what you're dealing with right now in your life. I'm sure there's a myriad of things. We all have personal stuff we're going through in our lives, in our relationships, and our families. And then you add on top of that all the stuff we're going through just because our culture is and our society is so crazy right now. We have to return to this. Unceasing prayer is our lifeline to the unceasing power of God. He's the one we need. I said it earlier, church, we need to pray more. More. We are facing way too many challenges, way too many struggles, way too many temptations right now to not be praying constantly. We should be constantly on our face before our mediator, taking full advantage of our access and our help with him. And I'm convinced so often We have not because we ask not. And we ask not because we lack faith that God will do what he said he will do.